postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. You know, and that kind of brings me to the, the final topic that I wanted to explore. Um, you've already sort of flown in there naturally. It's... it's how headship theology impacts mission because that's like that's always the thing that i'm like most interested in because the story church project is essentially a, a project an online ministry that's aiming to equip the next generation of adventist post-church missionaries urban missionaries training urban missionaries missional communities um really redesigning adventism for mission and away from like the sort of like the traditions that have caught us kind of like hunkered down and stuck in what uh, John Bunyan would refer as the slough of despond, right? Um, <laughs> that's kind of what we've been stuck in for a while. Um, yeah, so you, you can see the missional potential for um, discarding headship theology, but within that, you can also see how headship theology negatively impacts mission and it negatively impacts our capacity to engage the world around us uh, with with uh, with with depth, with relevance, with meaning, but more importantly, with a community of people who clearly reflect the character of Jesus. You know, like I think that is our most powerful. That is the church's most powerful evangelistic tool. It's not great speakers. It's not amazing graphics. It's not how cool your evangelistic program and advertising is. The most powerful tool we have for evangelism as a church is people who love like Jesus loved. And I personally, maybe I'm being a bit too radical here. So you, you can, you can call me down, Nicole. I don't think it's possible. Don't expect for us. me to do that. <laughs> I, I don't think it's possible for us to love like Jesus loves if headship theology is something that we're embracing. I just don't think it's possible. Um, uh, am I saying that everyone who believes headship theology is somehow unloving? That's not the point that I'm getting at. I'm talking collectively as a, as a people, as a community of faith who is moving into the world. If headship theology is allowed to linger and go unchallenged within our community, I don't think we will, we will be, be the kinds of people who love like Jesus loves. There's too much toxicity in this theological framework. There's too much uh, power hungriness. There's too much coercion. Uh, and, and even the very picture of God, right? We become what we behold, right? If we're beholding a God who is hierarchical and power hungry, there's no way we're not going to begin to reflect that in, in our own personal lives. So I don't know. What, what do you yeah, think? Yeah. See, I totally get there are going to be people listening to this podcast who are still like, but some kinds of headship theology are okay. Well, if you want to believe that the God of the universe, that the father is somehow over the son, but that means that he, that the father is going to be the first one obligated to serve, that he's the one who takes the absolute lowest place, that somehow the father is even lower than the son, that the th throne means that somehow he puts himself even lower. I'm not going to argue with that. Maybe so. 
if that's your headship theology, then if that's the way it's going to be duplicated in your home and your family, that the husband is the one most obligated to serve. Okay. You know, whoever has the most power is the one most obligated to serve. That's how I see it. The man who has the biggest muscles is the one most obligated to stand up for the person who doesn't have the biggest muscles. You know, this is, this is just basic servant leadership. So that's not the kind of headship theology I'm saying is evil and wrong and deadly. I'm saying the kind that teaches that a person who is the most powerful is somehow entitled to the best place, that the pastor who elbows his way to the front of the potluck line and says, guys, this is my food. I go first and whatever's left for you guys, you know, <laughs> of course, I don't know any pastors that do that literally, but functionally I have seen headship theology do some horrible things in people's lives, in the way they treat their families and the way they treat other people in the church. Um, because that, that kingship mentality that give us a king mindset is fundamentally against the character of God. It's like, it's like you put, you handicap yourself, break one leg and then try to run a marathon. You can limp along on that leg that, you know, is not fully healed, but until we get rid of the headship theology that teaches that one person is supposed to be ahead of everybody else, we simply are not going to be able to have that true spirit-filled servanthood that characterized the Acts 2 movement and beyond. That's the thing. Like, if we can understand the character of God and, and that God is not a hierarchy, that God is not driven by the desire for power, that the Trinity is a experience, an eternal community of love that is marked by they, they, a mutual submission within the, within the Godhead and that he designed us in our human relationships to operate that way. He designed all of society to operate that way. That's why heaven's going to be so amazing because everyone's going to mutually submit to everyone, right? Like there's like a mayor who's like, you know, I'm going to manipulate everything that's happening in this, in this city so that I can make more money than everyone else and be rich while all the people are going. No, none of that stuff. It's like everyone is going to mute be mutually submissive. And, and I believe that God has called the church to be a foretaste of heaven. So if there's one place where people should be able to go to get a taste of how amazing this new civilization is going to be, it ought to be the church, right? Like, yeah, if, if not in the church, where is the character of God going to be revealed? Must we go to the Buddhists or Hindus or anywhere else to see people who are doing the best they can to understand the character of a God of self-sacrificing love when they don't actually know the creator of the universe, when they don't actually have that message of God created male and female in his image right at the beginning and said, the two of you together will image self-sacrificing love. You know, when you think about it in those terms, it's so exciting. It's, it's so exciting to think, you know, how incredible would it be to, to live in a world um, where everyone loves each other self-sacrificially, where everyone lays down their you know, lives. Um, obviously, you know, we're not going to be dying, but you know what I mean? Like metaphorically, like we're laying down our right. interests and, and our, and our desire for the highest place isn't even there. Like we're, we're just, this is the natural rhythm. You know, Ellen White describes it toward the end of the great controversy that, uh, when sin and sinners are no more one, one pulse of gladness beats through the vast creation. 
right? In every object, animate, inanimate, everywhere you go, like the whole universe, right? There's this one beat that's just like unanimous, this, this oneness, right? Um, and it's God is love, right? That's the yes. thing, you know, that's, that's what, and, and, and we get to be the foretaste of that. That's what he wants in our homes and our families now to have that taste of heaven on earth, as Ellen White says, that that foretaste when our homes are, are led in this way and our churches are led in this way, then the rest of the world will stop and say, whoa, what's happening with those people? And mm. right at the end of time, this is what it's going to boil down to. We're going to have oil and water. Those people who live for self and those people who live out the law of love, loving God with all their hearts and their neighbors as themselves. It will only be these two groups at the end of time. And one of them gets wiped out and one of them gets translated. In order to become part of that group that's translated, we have to become people who's, who are stripped of this headship theology, this kingship mentality, where the leader gets to be entitled and have special privileges. These mm. things must be let go of because the disciples missed out. They did not see what was going on in the first coming. And that's why they missed out on that precious opportunity of three and a half years of learning what servant leadership looked like. And the whole time they're elbowing for the highest place. And here we're doing the same thing again, mm. right at the end of time, we misunderstand ordination, just like the disciples did. They thought they were ordained for the highest places instead of the lowest. And they didn't want to be foot washers right up to the end. Here we are again going well, but ordination, doesn't that set people aside for the highest place? And we're missing the message and hindering the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because we're still fighting over who gets the highest place. That's right. It should not be. It should not be a topic. And yet mm -hmm. I see it revealed that the theology that we believe is always what we'll live out. I think that's a really good place to land this plane because I wanted to ask you what your vision for the future of our church is as it pertains to this issue. Um, because, you know, we can speak theoretically and abstractly, but there is a tangible and a real, there is a sensory experience that is uh, attached to this kind of negative theology, the kinds of things that, you know, I remember when I was at Southern studying theology and, uh, some of my sisters in the theology, in the, in the theology program who, the kind of things they had to put up with, I mean, it was and I'm not talking about within the theology program necessarily. It was if they went to a, a particular local church and, you know, they were invited to preach by some people in the church who were supportive. But then after the sermon, there were like the aunties who would corner them, you know, in the foyer and start hammering, you know, like just and the kinds of rhetoric and language and just the vitriol that that they had to put up with and and i remember speaking to to some of them and just the discouragement and the pain and i remember thinking like i don't care what your theological conviction is wounding someone like this this is not jesus like he wouldn't break a bruised reed you know and yet we think it's okay because we have a theological position that 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 justifies the mistreatment of the other which is predicated on the fact that you've already dehumanized them. So they don't, they, you know, you don't, you don't see them as worthy of the same respect that, that you would expect for yourself. It's just, it's, yeah, it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. So I, I guess, yeah. Um, let me stop blabbering here. 
how do you relate to that? You know, because like I said, we, we've spoken in, in the abstract, but obviously there's the real, there's the tangible um, experiences that people are going through that are really hurtful. And um, so talk to us a little bit about that. And also like what, what your hope and dream for us as a people, as a denomination and, and as a movement, really, uh, what, what is that hope and dream? Wow, <laughs> what a big topic. <laughs> you know, I have so many friends, women in ministry who, you know, we all tell each other the stories sometimes when we're emotionally up to it. If, you know, people walking out of the church when a woman stands up to speak or those kinds of things. And then there are the, I don't know, microaggressions may be a word that uh, triggers some people, but you know, the, the reality that when I'm in a conversation with male theologians, I'm functionally often invisible. Um, but there are just sometimes the outright cruelty astonishes me. Um, I, I know, I, I remember when I, I had written this paper actually and sent it to a man who I knew was on the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. And, um, you know, which by the way, someday I hope to make this paper into a book or even a doctoral dissertation. I don't know. We'll, we'll see where that all goes. But I, at the time, I was just hammering out my thoughts as a woman in agony going, God called me to ministry at 18. I've never regretted that. And yet I was against women being ordained. I was against women being even elders in the church. I didn't believe anything of this was right until I studied it for myself, as I'd always been told to by the conservative movement that I had been immersed in. Study it all out for yourself. Look at what the Bible says. Don't just believe people. And I was distant enough from all of the, the conservative theologians that I believed I had to trust that I thought, well, let me just study what the Bible actually says instead of listening to some presentation by somebody else. And my husband was hugely supportive of me studying this because he was much more um, a believer of women in ministry. He, he just didn't buy this stuff. So when I studied it for myself and I wrote out the things that I had found in this paper, I shared it with this guy on the theology coordination study committee. And then I happened to run into him at the general conference session. He had been a good friend of ours. And I said, so what do you think about my, my paper? Did you ever read it? And he said, well, I did. But then I got really into studying this for myself. And I, I, I just had this great idea. And I actually wrote my own book and published it. And it was called, I believe, the Ten Commandments Solution to Women's Ordination, which I think he just self-published, so there probably aren't any copies around. But the Ten Commandments Solution to Women's Ordination, he essentially said, look, men are the morally responsible beings. The Ten Commandments are addressed to men. It says, um, don't covet your neighbor's wife, but it doesn't say don't covet your neighbor's husband. So based on that, he was saying, well, men are the ones who are morally responsible beings. And I was like, but I said, I, I don't even really want to talk about ordination. I said, let's just focus on what we agree on. Women need to be in ministry, at the very least to other women doing stuff that men shouldn't be doing for women. And women should be paid from the tithe. What do you propose we should do to move toward those goals? I wasn't even trying to argue with him about ordination. I said, let's just, let's just move toward what we agree on. Let's talk about those things. And he did not want to. He wanted to go back to no Women are supposed to be under men's power. Women are created to, in a position inferior to men, um, which my husband went and confronted him about the next day after this guy treated me this way. And, and the guy admitted to him, yeah, well, I believe for all of eternity, women are going to be in an inferior position to men. This is literally his diehard theological belief, at least at that time, maybe he's changed now. 
but this was his mindset and he was one of the leaders on the theology of ordination study committee and I was like wow but I said you know so I, I started telling him I said but look at what's going on in the world with abuse and I mentioned I said look there are situations these women are writing to me from Africa saying please help me I'm being sexually assaulted by church leaders and other people I said how are we gonna we need to get women in ministry to those women we need to help those women let's forget about ordaining let's just figure out ways to put women in ministry in Africa and other places where women are being abused because of male authority and he just was exasperated with me he did not want to talk about that finally he, he just said Nicole you don't care about the women of Africa have you ever even been to Africa? And I was like, dude, I lived there. Do you not remember that? And he's oh like, goodness. oh, for how long? And I was like, I, would, I lived there for nine months. And he repeated, you don't care about the women of Africa. It's all about money for you. It's all about power. He literally, those were his words, word for word. That's what he said to me. The words just burned in my mind for weeks. I was like, how can you say it's all about money and power for me? I have no power. You are ordained. You are on a literal theology of ordination study committee. You're being paid from tithe. I have no tithe money except what my husband is paid because I'm a pastor's wife. I have never been paid with tithe. I have never had a position of power. I've never even been ordained as a deaconess. Like, why would you say it's all about money and power for me? But he was so committed to this mindset, he could not see anything except women are trying to get money and power. I remember um, talking with Dr. Mostala, who, you know, the dean at Andrews. Now, he was just such a godly example to me. Um, and the contrast between these two men and the way that they treat me was just so incredibly profound. Um, I, honestly, until I came to Southern, I was used to just being treated by men, you know, you're just invisible. If you're not working in the cleanup from potluck, you can come sit and listen to us, but don't try to talk in our conversations. Whereas when I came here to Southern and Dr. King um, was the Dean of the religion department, he was just so kind. And I just noticed from the beginning, he talked to me as a human being. When my husband came and interviewed, you know, I was like, well, they're not gonna let me be in there. And he invited me in. So do you have any questions? And I was like, wow, these guys, it, it was, it was just incredible because they actually like turned to me with an open face and just like included me in conversations as though as a human, I, I don't know how to describe it. If you haven't been there, I don't know that you can understand it. And being here with Dr. King treating me like that and, you know, talking with me, asking my input on theological um, topics and then. Uh, when I went to Andrews, I just couldn't believe it, Marcos, the way that my professors like treated me like the guys in the class. Like if I raised my hand, they paid just as much attention to what I said as if I had been a male. You know, most of the people in the class were pastors. They were being sponsored by their conferences. They were, you know, they had their hotel room covered, their food paid for. I didn't, but I was just so incredibly grateful to be there getting these classes that I mean people have no idea what a privilege it is people are like oh I have to go to seminary wow do you understand what you're talking about I sat there in those seminary classes just eating it up going I can't believe I'm allowed to be in this class 
And the conference had sponsored me to be in the class, even though I had to pay for my own housing and food. It was just an incredible blessing. And every one of these professors, with the possible exception of one, <laughs> treated me with great respect and just as though I was a person to be respected. I don't know how to describe it. It changed my mentality about the leadership of the church, just the way that they talked to me and listened to me and had lunch with me along with all the other guys and just, I don't know. And I remember talking with Dr. Mascala once about one of the other guys, not, not the guy I mentioned already, but somebody else who was on the Theology of Ordination Study Committee who had presented a paper at the committee where he was basically proposing that women are created inferior to men. They are created for the glory of the man, taking Paul's words to their ultimate farthest he could and saying, you know, the men are created for the glory of God. Women are created for the glory of man and applying that practically. And so Dr. Moscow and I talked about that and he said, well, yeah, that's, these are the things he presented. I said, you know, I used to work under him as a call porter for many years. And I described a little bit of what it was like, you know, that the ways that women had the hardest jobs, um, women, you know, as leaders, we were expected to do the things that men didn't have to do. And um, I remember being dropped off on the side of the road where the male leader had run a, run a car out of gas. So he and I were co-leading a team because he and the other male leader in the program had killed a car basically they, I had seen the car was running out of oil and I was like look the oil lights on he's like ah it's always on and the next day the other male leader had taken the same car nobody put oil into it they burned out the engine and so we had to rent a car for the rest of the summer and I was the ground leader which if you understand culpitering that meant that one of these guys would drive a car and manage a team a large team of students and I would be the one who went, went door to door, actually out there in the heat with the students all day long. The, the guys didn't do it. They stayed in the air conditioned car and I would be out there as a ground leader. So on this particular day, I was the ground leader again, which I was for the rest of the summer after the guys burned out the engine. And he, he said, well, I've got all the students out here in the territory here's the car that I ran out of gas. And I was like, okay, well, tell me where the students are and I can go manage them. He said, no, that's not how this is going to work. And I was like, are you kidding me? Are you seriously kidding me? You're going to leave me in the middle of nowhere with a car out of gas and I'm going to have to go find a way to get gas for it. And he was like, sorry, bye. So that's what happened. And I had to go walking down this country road in absolute nowhere until I came to a shack and found this man who said, yeah, I'll drive you to town. And I was like, oh my goodness, I could be raped and murdered. But mm. everything was, I was second position. It, it yeah. wasn't important. like a second so class I, citizen. Obviously I survived, <laughs> but yeah, I was the second class citizen. And, and I said to Dr. Moscala, I said, this is, the kind of ways that I was treated by men in these positions. And those are just a couple of examples. Hmm. Men who hold on to this headship theology and who say in words, they're like, oh yeah, men are supposed to protect women, take care of women. They're the ones who are supposed to take the heaviest load and the hardest jobs. Men will do that, but they don't. Hmm. 
these are two of the people who are in the leadership position who were placed on this committee. And I know for a fact the way that they treat women. Hmm. And I, I said, I told Dr. Moscala just a bit of this. And I said, you know, I can just say, speaking to this guy, I said, he lives out his theology. And Dr. Moscala said the most profound words. We always do. Hmm. So true. Absolutely. If, if a man believes he is entitled to power and, over women, he's going to be continually crippled, permanently crippled until he gets rid of that theology in his ability to actually love women as himself. You cannot yeah. love your neighbor as yourself if you believe your neighbor is inferior. So as you think about the, the, the future of our, of our church, of our movement, um, what would you like to see in, in terms of, I keep, I keep backing up from my microphones. Let me <laughs> sneak, get close here. It, the audio quality is actually nice. If I'm close to it, if I go far, it sounds kind of weird. Um, back to the question. Yeah, what, what, what would you like to see in our denomination, in our movement, in terms of, in terms of this theme or this issue? Um, what, what is your hope for the future? I want to see men like Dr. Mascala and Dr. King, a whole movement of men who treat women the way that Christ treats the church, love him, gave themselves for it. You know, love when men will love the women of the church and give themselves for them, love the children of the church, love the weaker members of the church. This is what it means to be a servant leader. And, um, you know, I remember asking Dr. Muscala, what can I as a woman do to help with this movement of women who need to be in ministry, who God has called to ministry and are being actively held back from positions of ministry because of mistaken theology? He said, this is not your position to do. You cannot change it. That's our job as men. Because, and, and I know he's right. When I try to argue, hey, women need to be put in ministry, paid from the tithe, I get slammed constantly with, you're just trying to get money and power in one way or another. But if men say it, it makes a difference. We need a church where those who are historically and culturally told you are entitled to extra power when those are the people who stand mm. up against it. You know, my husband yeah. has been a continual inspiration to me as he has continued telling me, God has called you to ministry. You know, he's brought me to tears telling me, I see your calling. I see mm. what God wants you to do. And I'm going to push for you to be able to do as much of that as possible. When men stand up for us in yeah. meetings, I remember one of my friends saying the other day, um, how, you know, it just, it's so remarkable when a man will stand up for you in a meeting and say, actually, she was saying something useful because the way that we get our ideas across typically is we mingle, you know, in the break and we talk to some guy that we know would listen to us and we say, here's an idea. What about this? And then we go back to the meeting and the man says, here's an idea. How about this? And it'll go. Whereas if a woman says it, and I know guys may not believe that I'm telling the truth here, but just it's just a reality of those women who are in active ministry and who are in leadership positions, just ask them, you know, this is, this is the norm, not the exception. And, and of course it's in the church as well as the world, but the church should be different. We should be a yeah. place where God uses every person. So my vision is not that women get ordained. 
we'll figure that out, that we can do a lot of different things to handle that side of the issue. My vision is the church filled with those who are in positions of leadership, using that leadership sacrificially, mm. realizing what Jesus has modeled for us when he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. What if we had had a general conference session that instead of focusing on can women be ordained, we had focused on men, here's what servant leadership looks like in your homes. Even if we had painted a vision where men are still supposed to be the heads of the homes and functionally, who cares if, a, if a man will be the servant leader and really buy into that. Imagine if we had a GC session or even an emphasis within the church of men, here's what it looks like to lead family worship. Mm -hmm. Men, get rid of your porn addictions. Men, spend time with your children. Men, turn off your televisions and have Bible studies with your kids instead. Mm -hmm. Imagine what we could do in the church with a, a body of believers where the men said, we are going to rise up in servanthood and sacrifice. Yeah. And I know we've seen some of these movements somewhat in in christianity you know the i don't remember what it was called the men uh there was some kind of men's movement where they were trying to have men lead out but functionally we know that a huge percentage of the men who were going to their conventions were doing porn within a week of those conventions we need a movement that is led by whoever has a voice yeah. saying, let's all be the priesthood of all believers. Let's live out Acts chapter one, where we come into one accord and everyone lets go of power and instead seek servanthood. That's the kind of movement that will enable Acts two to happen. The, the latter rain, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the mm. living out of the character of Christ so that when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his church, as a whole, when we love him with all of our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves, you know, the whole context of that quotation, when you look at it, is about the fruits of the spirit being born in our lives. And that will never happen as long as we're going, hey, I have rights too. Yeah, absolutely. It has to be, how can I serve? That's, that's my passion. The mission mm -hmm. of the church is to reveal the character of Christ in a way that will take the gospel to the world. And that will happen when we all let go of our highest place mentality and look for our lowest place mentality. You know, as you are painting that picture, I couldn't help but think, you know, as you were painting a picture of like, what if we had a general conference on this, right? Like what if our focus was this, you know, to become a people, even if it started with the men, right. To become a, a, a a, a, a people, a, a group or a community of men who seek the lowest place, who seek to live lives in harmony with who God is and, and what he is like. What, what would the outcome of that be? Uh, it's difficult to imagine how powerful that would be. But what I can tell you, which you already know, is what did happen after the general conference session where, you know, we have this thing all built around this hierarchical view of God, this headship theology, deeply influencing even the session itself. Um, and then what happened after our church went into a season of power struggle, unlike anything 
I've ever seen. Like I've never seen anything like it in, in my lifetime. You know, I mean, the power right. struggle, right. you know, unions doing this, the general conference, you know, what, what would they, they, what, what was that thing they established some committee for compliance, you know, compliance committees. And, uh, you know, right. it's I, an it was just, mindset. Yeah, mindset. we just went into this season of, of hierarchical power struggle, you know, George Knight published a book on it, you know, the, the Roman Catholic temptation, you know, it's, it, it was just yeah, insane was to see it. And it was like, Step by step by step, we were just becoming less and less like Christ. Um, so yes, I couldn't. And you know, I, I understand when a when a father has a two year old and has to say, "Hey, you're going to have to learn to submit to my authority." There, there is a place for church authority, and hmm. I I don't mean to undermine that when I talk about, "Hey, we need to we need to rise up. Something has to happen because right now what we're doing." with the, the church structure in crushing out women from ministry functionally is hurting our mission. We have to do something differently. I'm not encouraging an uprising of let's all defy the church and ordain women anyway. I, I don't even know where I stand on that, but that's not a movement I'm a part of. What mm. I am a part of is a movement that says we must follow what God says, put women into ministry, pay them from the tithe, Teach that every person is part of the priesthood of all believers, called to serve, called to minister. And those that are ministering, the laborers should be worthy of their hire. Um, you know, when we think of this, just it's not like a, but men, are men going to be able to keep discussion? You know, Marg Mosco um, has a, she's a theologian with some tremendous insights on these issues. And she, she brings out how in the Hebrew, the Ezer Kenechdo, the, the woman who was created as a helpmeet. We've historically always seen that as well. She's a junior partner. She's the vice president or even just the employee. The head is the head and the woman is the assistant. But helpmeet doesn't mean that at all. It's, it's actually, you know, the opposite. It was, it was a term that showed that a woman was supposed to be powerful you know, the Ezer Connecto is, it, it, it's not, it's not what we've made it into. Oh, she's a helper, you know, like my kids would help me wash dishes when they were little. Um, that's not it. It was actually more of a, a stronger person. The woman mm -hmm. was the one who was supposed to be, you know, that Connecto, that the Ezer Connecto shows that a woman is supposed to be um, strong, not weak. Mm. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of flubbing this. I'm looking for the, uh, the actual quotation, just yeah. seeing if I can find where she said it. Might well, as, 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 as you're searching for this and, and, and you maybe had it here anyways, but it's, it's a, it, I found it really interesting point that that term throughout scripture is used of God when it defines God as our helper, it uses the same exact term. So if the term is supposed to denote an inferior, well, we've got a problem here <laughs> because the same exact term, the Ezer Connecto, it's, it's used to define, you know, when it talks about God being our helper, uh, it uses that same term. So it's clearly not a hierarchical phrase that right. um, or should yeah, be interpreted that right way. Now. But the number of times that it's used to refer to God, the Holy Spirit, 
as the mighty helper, but mm. clearly it was it was it was used usually to show that this mightier one is coming in to mm-hmm. help. Yeah. So when when we don't have women in ministry, we lose out on this Ezer Connecto, this stronger one mm. who comes in and helps and, and gives the strength that we won't have if we only have men leading out in the church. Absolutely. Women must be part of this taking the gospel to the world, not just as those who stay at home and homeschool their children, although that's powerful. And here I am homeschooling my kids right now as teenagers. I, I am not against women being at home. I'm, you know, the bread baking, read the Bible with my kids, um, homeschool, granola, whatever, you know, here I am <laughs> as a woman who isn't in paid ministry arguing that we need women in paid ministry. I mean, I am at least teaching a couple of classes at Southern now and they do pay me, but it's just as an adjunct couple of classes a year. Hmm. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying every woman's ministry must be pastoral or anything like that. If a woman is called to teach, preach, or be a nurse or a plumber or whatever, all of us should be in full-time ministry in whatever way we can. But those who are doing the kinds of ministry that preclude them from doing other kinds of ministry, you know, of other kinds of jobs need to have some way to support themselves. That's Absolutely. my vision for the church, a simple obeying God's commands. He said, put women into ministry and pay them from the tithe. Let's look for ways to do that. Hmm. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. All right. All right, Nicole, I got to wrap this up. This has been absolutely incredible. I feel like we could go on for hours more, um, I but but I, I I figured I think I think there's one more question I want to ask that I feel like it's just uh it just kind of came to my head. I feel like this is probably a really good one. I was gonna end on the last one, but I want to end on this next one. Uh, but before I do that, thank you so much, Nicole, for taking the time to record this series with me and to have this conversation. Um, it's been absolutely phenomenal, mind-blowing. Uh, on the website, as we release these episodes, your paper will be on there as well as some of the resources that we've mentioned throughout this series. So for those of you who are listening, if you go to the storychurchproject.com slash podcast, at the very top, you'll see all the episodes that have been released thus far for this series. And it'll have a link underneath it where you can access Nicole's books that we talked about earlier, as well as the paper that she wrote on ordination and uh, other things that we've mentioned throughout the series. Uh, yeah, the paper is really on headship more than on ordination. That's right. It's actually on headship. Thank you for the correction. It's actually on headship, not, not ordination. There's, there's also um, a book that I edited called The Lead Challenge, uh, 40 day, The Lead 40-Day Anti-Racism Challenge that follows up on some of these issues from a perspective of racism so it's a devotional it's from a very different perspective but it's about how how do these same principles apply yeah. to racism um Absolutely. it follows after the lead pledge which my family and i wrote leadpledge.org if you look that up and we wrote that as an anti-racism pledge in the midst of the protests and everything else after george floyd's murder um, this, this topic applies to everything. That's the thing. When we understand biblical theology of headship, servant leadership, everything else 
follows in its place. Good things. We start seeing the image of God in everybody, everywhere. We start treating children well. We start treating handicapped well. We start treating the elderly well. We start treating the immunocompromised well. Instead of saying, well, too bad for them. I'm going to do whatever I want. Creation properly applied helps us to see the image of God in every human being. The homeless mm. person and the conference president and even the abuser. God wants us to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I can't emphasize enough. This is the message that is so relevant at the mm. end of time. Amen. Amen. So here's the final question, Nicole. Um, someone's listening right now who is thinking, you know, God called me to ministry. Uh, a, 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 a listener who is a, a woman, uh, God called me to ministry. And um, I've got a lot of tension on should I pursue this? What, what do I do? I'm discouraged by the current context and et cetera. Um, and you've had conversations, live conversations with people uh, who are struggling with this. What would be your words of encouragement for them? I have never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. Um, I know that to be a woman in ministry in this context of the church means diving into conflict and we don't enjoy it and it's hard and it tempts us to rise up in self-defense and in self-reliance and in self-pity but if you're called to ministry then god will give you the strength to do what you're called to do don't ever hold back from doing what is right because it's hard and i say that for men who maybe wondering, do they want to stand up for women in ministry or do they want to stand up against abusers or anything? Every person will face conflict at some time in their lives. And the conflict is fierce over this, but conflict makes us choose. It forces us to choose between courage and cowardice. If we love, we will choose courage. If we're self-centered, we will choose cowardice. Don't choose self-centeredness. Don't choose cowardice. Find a way to do what God has called you to do and be absolutely fearless when it comes to dealing with that. Because in the end, there will be souls in the kingdom because you made that choice and it will be worth it all. You know, I shrank from this conflict for a while and I've been hammered down and told by people, hey, don't talk about this. It's ruining your ministry. It's holding you back in your evangelistic efforts. You know what? I'll bet that putting women and slaves in an equal category with men held back Christian evangelism significantly in the early church too. But you do right because it is right. Ellen White says that, and that I believe in living by. And I've realized I have to talk about these things, both because this is about the character of God. How can we be silent on it? And also because this is a crucial part of taking the gospel to the world. We must live out the character of Christ. We must do something. And my daughter is called to ministry, whatever she's going to do, I have to pave the way. And if you are called just to pave the way for other women in ministry after you who will be able to do things you cannot, your life will in no way have been in vain. Your sacrifice will have in no way have been in vain. I don't mean to sound overdramatic because some people live in places where women in ministry are encouraged and you might be going, well, come on, it's not that hard for women. First of all, you may not know, but even if it is, even if it is easy for a woman to be in ministry, um, it's a sobering call. Take it seriously. Don't ignore it. 
let God do whatever he wants to do. Just lift your hands to him and say, Lord, use me in whatever way you want to use me. You'll never, never regret that decision. Whew, that is fire. That is fire. Thank you so much, Nicole. Um, and thank you for, thank again, you. for being a part of this. This has been incredible. Can't wait to edit these and release them. This is going to be, it's going to be awesome. Um, all right. So uh, we're going to, we're going to wrap it up with that, but thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you for listening. And uh, again, don't forget to check out those links so you can get your hands on all the resources. And if you have any particular questions or if you want to dialogue with Nicole um, or explore uh, her ministry and, and where, where can you be found uh, online, Nicole? Well, that's a great question. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on um, Twitter uh, as Willowbirds on Twitter. Um, there I focused more on uh, abuse issues and some things like that. And currently some of the crisis going on in Ukraine and some of my friends there. Um, on Facebook, I connect, I try to connect more with friends. Sometimes I have to dodge. I've had to go on and off of Facebook sometimes because abusers and their, um, their cronies sometimes target me there. And I've had some really exciting things happen (laughs) (laughs) that I had to just uh, extortion and all kinds of attempts to destroy me and argue against me. But, um, yeah, social media is a place that you can find me. Uh, as Willow Birds or Nicole Parker on Facebook and Nicole Parker Books, um, although you can't really communicate with me there. We're still trying to figure out what to do with our website if we want to continue with the one that we've had for a long time, um, heartthirst.com, or if we want to move to a new brand, try to start over. I'm not sure what we're going to do in all of those, but you can find my seminars on Audioverse as well on general topics like devotions and relationships and things like that. I I just, you know, wherever you can look, find good resources. I'll recommend some good resources on Twitter and places like that. Um, But don't be afraid to think outside the box. Just never think outside the box of God's word, because that is not a restricting box. That's the box of true freedom. I love that, man. That's got to be a t-shirt. That was like, that was cool. That's, that's a tweetable. I'm going to, I'm going to tweet that <laughs> with proper attribution. Of course. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to get going now, but again, thank you. This has been incredible. And uh, yeah, until the next one.